Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Good morning. I don't think this has ever happened before. We've never before had a guest speaker on Palm Sunday. This is a first, but I'm excited that we do today. For several years now, we've been partnering with Rollin and Rachel Mays, who serve the Lord on the campus of Texas A&M University. When you hear that school name, don't think about whether you like or dislike them sports-wise. Just know it is one of the nation's largest universities. Massive campus, huge student body. And we know that that demographic is one in which America is slowly losing our hope. We're wondering if God is still working in that generation. And there's so many writing about the massive exodus of young people from churches across this country. And yet when I read their updates and I hear about their ministry, it's really comforting to see God very much still at work revealing himself to people. And this is, in this age of skepticism, it's not persuasion, it's not manipulation. People know what feels true and what doesn't. And people are finding their truth in the person of Jesus Christ. That's so life-giving for me to think about. They're becoming friends, and I want to invite Roland and Rachel to come up. They're going to bring God's word to us as a team. If you, if Rachel looks familiar, it's because Rachel's brother is Pastor Jared, who used to serve with us for many years and is now the senior pastor of Hope Community Church. I want to pause and just pray for these two before they bring the word of God, and I'm going to pray for us as well as we receive it. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the work that Roland and Rachel and their whole team are doing in such an important place like a campus. And we praise you, God, for the fruit that we're seeing through the work that they're doing there. And we see you in that work. We see you revealing yourself and reaching after the next generation of people in this country. And we're so grateful. We thank you for sustaining them, providing all that they've needed, and bringing them here to bring your word. We pray that today the word they bring will bring hope to us, would restore our optimism in the God who lives, who moves and acts. And as we receive the word, be just as much at work in our own hearts that everything that is said would penetrate into the depths of our hearts. Now have your way. Bring your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, Dave. Man, we, uh, we are enjoying this morning with you guys. I know I really appreciate what Pastor Frank was sharing. Just that slowness of entering God's presence of looking towards him. Thank you, Audrey, and the rest of the team for worship. So when we, uh, when we got here, we left Texas. It was like 75 and sunny. And we rolled in here, and it was 35 and snowing and cloudy. And ever since we've been here, it's just been getting sunnier and sunnier, feeling more and more like Texas. So I don't know if we get to take any credit for that. But it's been a fun thing to watch, and I know we've been staying with Rachel's parents. And every time the sun shines, they get very excited. It's like, it's shining. The sun's out. We need to go outside. Um, so as Dave said, uh, we're Roland and Rachel Mays. We're campus missionaries at Texas A&M. We are with 
a campus-focused church called Fellowship Church. It's part of a network of campus-focused churches all across the U.S. called the Collegiate Church Network. And our connection to the Chicago area, Rachel grew up here over in Elmhurst um, with, as Dave mentioned, Jared and her other brother, Matt. Uh, And then I grew up in Texas, spent a couple years on the mission field with my parents, uh, but then actually, strangely enough, ended up finishing my high school career up here. So I went to Wheaton Academy. I went my sophomore through senior years of high school here. We're at Wheaton Academy. And then when we graduated, I graduated high school in 2004. She did in 2005. She went to the U of I. I went to Texas A&M. I'm a third-generation Aggie. That's what we're called, Aggies. It relates to agriculture. That's what the A stands for, the Agricultural and Mechanical College of Texas. Uh, and so... Anyways, how we met is that we uh, became, she became part of a church at the University of Illinois that was in the Collegiate Church Network, and me at Texas A&M, and then in 2008, we both went out to a summer discipleship project in Colorado, and so we met uh, in, in Colorado, and here we are today, many years later. So we were talking uh, with Dave and Stan a few weeks ago about this morning when Harvest invited us to come share. And as Dave alluded to, they they encourage us to share on that theme of hope. Is there hope for the next generation? Is there hope for the church to flourish? Not to survive, to flourish in the coming decades. Is, Is there hope? And at first, I think that question, it can sound very theoretical, right? It can sound kind of abstract. But the reality is that hope is intensely practical. Hope is energizing. Do you know what I mean? When you feel hope for something, you feel this energy that rises up in you. And so hope in every area of life, it's what strengthens people. It's what strengthens people to move forward. It's what strengthens people to work. It's what strengthens you to sacrifice. When you have hope, you're willing to sacrifice. And so that question of, is there hope? It is an intensely practical question. And so as Rachel and I were just thinking about uh, that, that theme that Dave and Stan prompted us with, Reflecting on it, we were drawn to two tightly connected prophetic books in the Old Testament, Haggai and Zechariah. And Haggai, for me personally, has left a deep mark in my life that I can trace back to college. I remember when I read the book of Haggai in college. I will not forget it. And Zechariah has uh, similarly left a very deep Mark in Rachel's life. And even this year, beyond just our own personal stories in ministry, at retreats, in times of listening prayer, we have sensed God placing a special emphasis for us and our ministry on those prophetic words from Haggai and Zechariah. And so our message this morning, it's titled after a line that's drawn directly from Haggai, Haggai 2 verse 5. My spirit remains in your midst. My spirit remains in your midst. That word of hope was a landscape-altering, 
story-changing breakthrough word of hope to a struggling group of Israelites. And Rachel and I, we want to say, we want to say it boldly and confidently. We believe it is God's word to us. We believe it's God's word to harvest. We believe it is God's word to the church in this country. My spirit remains in your midst. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to connect with the situation that that word was spoken into in Haggai's day. And in entering into their experience, I think we're going to see that, that it converges with some of what we're experiencing in our moment, even as we relate to that question of, is there hope for the next generation? What we are experiencing as believers and followers of Jesus Christ in 21st century America. And then we're just going to finish by sharing some stories of hope. We collected a bunch of stories from our students. We're not sharing all of them. We picked a few. And we want to share them. We want to share stories about the presence and work of God's spirit. Stories of hope. So before I start, I'm just going to pray one more time. Um, Jesus, we just invite you here. We just say you are worthy. Jesus, you're the king. You're the resurrection and the life. And, um, And we just come before you and we just say you're just worthy of everything. Jesus, we just pray that you would speak a word this morning, that these would not be our words, they would be your words, Jesus, and that you would just give us, like, impart faith and hope, that you would increase our faith, like we were saying before. I just pray that in your name, Jesus. So a little over 15 years prior to Haggai's prophecy, there were about 40,000 Israelites that they made the decision to return from Babylonian exile to Judah their homeland. So their decision to take the opportunity to return to Judah, it was a courageous faith decision. So after 70 years of exile, they were established in Babylon. To return to Judah, it was a leap into the unknown, a choice to uproot their families, to take a lengthy, risky, costly journey back to their homeland, a homeland that had radically changed a homeland filled with the ruins of their prior lives, the ruins of the temple, the ruins that testified to their failure as God's people. But they chose to take the risk, to make the journey, to face the pain of their past in the hope that where their ancestors had failed, they might succeed. And they had one goal above all others, and that was to rebuild the temple. They would rebuild the temple of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and they would be true to him. They would be faithful. Out of the dead stump, they would be the branch of new life. The reason for this context is to make a simple point. These weren't the law-breaking, prophet-persecuting, idol-worship variety of Israelites. No. These were the humbled, faith-filled, passionate, courageous remnant. They were the fiery ones. They didn't just say they were followers of Yahweh. They proved it. They made brave, sacrificial decisions. After a long journey, they made it to the ruins of Jerusalem around 536 BC. They built an altar, 
and established a new foundation for the temple. And then they were forced to stop the work of rebuilding the temple. And for 15 years, no more work happened. There was no progress for 15 years beyond that altar and the foundation. And as they went about their daily business, carrying goods into the city for sale, visiting family, there it was, up the hill, the stalled project. Despite all the sacrifice required to return to Jerusalem, the faithful remnant had little to show for their efforts. They were a discouraged, struggling, weak group of people. The stalled temple rebuild challenged their hope. Did God's spirit remain in their midst? And there were three realities that suggested he did not. First was their inability to overcome the opposition of the cultures around them. After building the altar and the new foundation, the surrounding people groups worked to get the local government to shut down the project. And it was shut down. God's people who thought they were under his blessing and protection, who thought they were doing his work under the favor of the one true God, were resisted and overcome by the pagan, idol worship peoples of the land. Where was Yahweh? How could this happen if he was in their midst? A second reality suggested Yahweh was no longer in their midst was the weight of their history. Like how could they ignore hundreds of years of this sustained faithlessness of their forefathers? In view of their current struggles, it was a second compelling reason to suspect Yahweh was no longer in their midst. And the third was their own personal failure. Instead of breaking the pattern of the past, they now seem to have slipped into it themselves. Where they had had the courage to uproot their lives in Babylon and re-immigrate to Jerusalem, they now lacked the courage to finish the temple in the context of the challenges they were facing. These were three painful realities eroding their hope. Three realities whispering in their subconscious God is not with you. The success of outside opposition against God's people, the weight of their history, and their own personal, personal failure. So to us, this might sound familiar. The success of outside opposition or resistance against God's people. You know, in our university context, we see this in a bunch of different ways. But one way in particular, we see it in how deeply ingrained the doctrines of the secular age are in the students that we meet. It's ideas that seem so obvious, so self-evident, like science is the ultimate authority on what's real. Or an understanding of history that says, well, the more that we've gotten away from religion the more equitable society has become. Or ideas of individual identity and purpose, like 
Well, each person's highest priority should be to understand and express their own sense of identity. Or even ideas related to the Bible, some of which believers hold. Like the God of the Old Testament, well, he was distant and judgmental, whereas Jesus was a merciful and inclusive teacher. Again, these ideas oftentimes seem so self-evident, so beyond questioning, so intrinsically good, that they are deeply, deeply attractive to the students that we meet. They become these, these basic barriers of resistance to students putting their faith in the God of the Bible. And doesn't it seem like sometimes like our modern culture is winning? Like it is succeeding in its resistance to the church of God. And so just like that faithful remnant, we wonder, does God's spirit remain in our midst? But it's not just the modern culture. Like the Israelites, we also face the weight of our own history. So last Thanksgiving... Rachel and I, we drove up here to visit her family. And it's a long drive. A lot of time to kill when we're making that drive. And uh, on both legs of the drive, we listened to uh, a podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Some of you guys may be familiar with it. It's a podcast from Christianity Today on Mars Hill Church, which was an influential megachurch in Seattle that self-combusted in 2014, and it just left thousands, thousands of people confused, wounded, and disillusioned. And I have a specific moment I remember as we were on that drive. We were actually pulling into a family member's driveway, and we had just, we were wrapping up an episode specifically focused on the spiritual abuse of women in particular at Mars Hill. And what I remember is the feeling of trying to switch from having just listened to that to enjoying family because I felt nauseated, angry. How could these things happen in a church that claimed to follow the way of Jesus, that preached Jesus, that preached the Bible? But when I asked that question, I wasn't just asking about Mars Hill, right? Because we have these stories all around us, all these little and big ways in which we are confronted with the big picture failures of the church. And in the face of the American church's failures, has the Lord moved on? Has he moved on? to other places around the world where there's more openness? Is he still in our midst? And then finally, I think we all face, we definitely face, all that personal, close-to-home failure. Addictions, persistent sins, 
broken and unreconciled relationships in the church that just last and last. We face the grief of watching kids who grow up in the church become disinterested or outright opposed. When we see these things, when we see our own failure, our own sin, when we see young people leaving, we can wonder, does God's spirit remain in our midst? Well, this is a pretty downer message, huh? Pastor Dave, he's over there smiling, but I think he might be, he might be wondering, why did I give these guys the mic? But thankfully, this is not where the message ends. And it's not where the message ends because it's not where God leaves his people. It's not where God left the returned exiles, the remnant struggling with doubt, fear, and failure. God speaks. And I just want to say that again. God speaks. And when God speaks, everything changes. So in 520 BC, so that's about 15 years after the work had stopped, God simultaneously raised up two different prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to speak to his people, to speak words that would change everything, to impart hope and courage in the very places of their hearts that had felt the doubt and the pain. And we believe it's a hope that God wants to impart today. It's a hope that God has been imparting to both me and Rollin this past year. And if you want to open up to Haggai, you can. It's right between the two Z books, Zephaniah and Zechariah. So I'm going to read Haggai chapter 2. He says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and to all the remnant of the people and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So to the leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua, God speaks. But not just to the leaders, to all the people God speaks. And out of all the commands and promises God speaks through Haggai, at the core are those simple words. My spirit remains in your midst. In their moment of fear and futility, facing the big failures of the past, their inability to, go, to complete the temple in the present and persistent pressure of the world around them, the word of God to them was this, my spirit remains in your midst. 
my spirit remains in your midst. What does it mean? The companion prophecy to Zerubbabel in Zechariah chapter 4 clarifies that question. Verse 6 and 7 say, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. Who are you, O great mountain? Throughout biblical prophecy, mountains are symbols of power. Often, nations, political powers are referred to as mountains. The picture in Zechariah is of the powers of the day rendered powerless. How? Not by might or by power, but by my spirit. And synonyms for spirit, it's like breath or wind. Genesis 2 verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. It's the breath of God, the spirit of God that transforms dust into a living, feeling, thinking, dynamic, volitional, relational being. So quite simply, the spirit of God is the difference between life and death. The spirit of God is the difference between a great mountain and a level plain. The spirit of God is the difference between a bare rock and a glorious temple. It's the spirit of God that is the difference between empty religiosity and fervent devotion. The spirit of God is the difference between being trapped in fear and liberated in courage. We mentioned it's Palm Sunday and we should say it's the spirit of God that is the difference between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And in the end, it is the spirit of God who is the difference between impossible and possible. The returning exiles, this faithful remnant that had tried to rebuild the temple and failed, they were living in the shadows of their own failure they were staring up at the great mountains, the powers of their day. They felt the pressure and the strength of the surrounding culture, tempting them, resisting them at every turn. They were small. They were weak. They were failing. And it was to them that God spoke, my spirit remains in your midst. Because outside of that word of God, there is something that happens very naturally and instinctively without us even realizing it. And it's what happened to them. We become inclined as we see our weakness, as we see the strength of the outside world, we become inclined to become defensive. We put our hope naturally in survival. That's what we think is the best outcome. The mountains of this world the opposition of this world, the stories of the church's failures, all of our own failures, 
all of them move us into this survival mindset. And Rachel and I, we're not going to be being, we're not going to be being honest with you guys if we don't acknowledge we feel that draw. Our campus ministry has faced plenty of discouragement. So a few examples. We've had similar numbers of freshmen join us as in the past, like when we look year over year. But we've seen higher numbers disappear after their freshman year. Students just seem less inclined to commit over the long term. You know, the issue is so pronounced here that there's a, we had a conference with some of the other churches that our church has planted at, at campuses in, in Texas. And we have a sister church that at that conference in February, they shared with us that it's become so acute, that issue of just seeing people come in and then leave, is that they have just come to the point where they think we can't even think of discipleship windows in anything outside of a year. We can't think in terms of two, three, four years with students. And you probably, you may know this, but mental health has always been an issue. But the level of the crisis that we see now in a college context, it is significantly worse than when Rachel and I were in college. You know, I know personally, I am working constantly, meeting weekly with young men who they have an authentic, genuine passion to follow God, but they are totally addicted to all sorts of stuff. They have a genuine desire to read their Bibles, to spend time in prayer and in quiet, to be men of meditation and contemplation, to be men who listen to the Lord, but their brains have been so uh, conditioned to constant stimulation that they struggle to ever put down the phone, to ever just be quiet And in case you're wondering, COVID didn't help with any of this. Simply put, the facts are not in our favor. The facts don't seem to be in the favor of the American church, period. Y'all feel this? We know you guys are waiting for us to slip a y'all in there. Right, But we believe that the word of the Lord to the Jewish remnant is the word of the Lord to us. The spirit of God remains in our midst. And believe is just what Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest And all the people did in response to the game-changing prophetic declaration that God remained in their midst. God spoke that word, and then God gave them the grace to believe it. And then the people worked. This is a resurrection picture. The people crushed by the weight of their history, struggling with their unbelief, feeling powerless to overcome the surrounding cultures, they come alive and they do the impossible. They rebuild the temple. And we see this resurrection picture in the students we work with. Despite the power of the culture and the struggling witness of the American church, the spirit of God is in our midst 
And he is taking great mountains and leveling them. His kingdom is coming. It's here, and he is continuing to build it. And here's a few stories of hope. So this is from a sophomore, and her name is Delaney. And this is what she said. She says, I remember things really clicked for me with Jesus when I was at a retreat last semester where we were encouraged to just go out in nature and have a quiet time with God. For most of my life, I had dealt with a lot of anger and pain and latched onto those feelings, being willing to forgive, unwilling to forgive. But most of the relationships around me were broken, and I just always thought I was broken as well. But during that quiet time, I let go of all my fears and just surrendered everything I was feeling to Jesus because I was just so tired of fighting. And all I remember next was praying on my knees and crying because I felt so clearly how the Lord had healed me from all that pain. The spirit remains in our midst. This is a story from Devin. He's a sophomore guy. He uh, sent us a long video uh, too long for us to play here, so we just kind of transcribed and we took a screenshot from his video. But that's Devin right there. And Devin, he gave his life to Christ this past fall. So here's some of what he shared with us. He said, my story with God first started this past fall semester when I was in the darkest, most depressed state of my life. I used bad coping mechanisms to try to ease the pain of what I was feeling. But it only damaged me even more. One day, my friend... Delaney, does that name sound familiar? My friend Delaney invited me to her home group. And Devin says, I just said, why not? So I went. I was met with open arms and kind of shocked by that because I was never welcomed with open arms by people I didn't know. I was actually kind of hesitant about it at first. People started sharing their feelings and emotions and what God was doing in their life. And I was amazed that they were sharing so honestly with me, someone they didn't know in the same room with them. That moment is when, when things clicked with me with God. I started going to home group every single week, and I just felt my brokenness starting to heal inch by inch, piece by piece. Every week I felt more love from God. And then I found myself praying. One thing that Devin doesn't share here is that he just started reading through the Gospel of Mark, and, a, and an older guy that was meeting with him was just talking to the Gospel of Mark with him every week. Every week I felt more love from God, found myself praying more, getting more devoted. In December, I got baptized again because before when I was younger, I didn't really know what it was. So I decided to get baptized, and from that moment on, that was the best experience of my life. I've never felt more peace. Praising God is just the most amazing experience. The Spirit remains in our midst. This next story is from a student named Faith. She's a senior. She actually came in 2017, and we've been pretty closely walking with her since then. And she's a, she's a walking miracle. It's crazy what God is doing in her life. This is what she says. I vividly remember the church service during my freshman year where I fully surrendered my life to God. I had gotten extremely drunk the night before, and I only went to church that morning because someone had asked me for a ride. I honestly could not tell you what was spoken about or who had spoken it or anything about that service. All I remember is that during the worship, it was, it was as if I turned around and Jesus was right there behind me 
inviting me to come to him. I had been running from him for the majority of my life, and yet there he was with open arms. And I decided at that moment that I was going to follow him wherever he told me to go, and I would do whatever he told me to do for the rest of my life. Faith, she also shares about her struggle with mental health. So she says that the summer after my freshman year of college, my mental health took a nosedive. There were no warning signs, no easing into it. I just got thrown head on into the most depressive state I'd ever been in my entire life. And I stayed there. Despite my attempts to turn to God, it did not seem to help. During my sophomore year of college, I was so depressed that in hindsight, I probably should have been hospitalized for it. I had constant suicidal thoughts that even manifested as dreams when I was sleeping. To sum up the last four years in terms of my journey with mental health, it has been extremely rough. But I've been insanely blessed with friends who love me and support me in times where I show up to everything and in times where I don't leave the house for weeks. But my friends, the therapy, and the medication has not been the thing that has gotten me this far. God is. God has been the one who's been there for me at two in the morning when I cannot sleep because constant, seemingly never-ending suicidal thoughts run through my head. He has been there for me when I've had mental breakdowns because doing simple tasks like eating and showering seem as difficult as running a marathon. God has been the constant foundation in my struggle with depression. When the medication wasn't working and the doctors didn't know why or what to do next, when I would do everything I was told to do by my therapist and nothing worked, God was still there. He would give me peace beyond understanding in the midst of depressive episodes, and he would make endless suicidal thoughts in my head stop in an instant. He has not, and he may never cure my depression. And I'm finally at a place where I'm okay with that because I know no matter how good or bad I feel, what I do or do not get accomplished in a day, he's going to be there. He will never leave me. And he is the ultimate authority over my depression. And I'm challenged every day just to make the choice to look to him for peace and stability. The spirit remains in our midst. You know, this past year, Rachel and I have been hosting a weekly 7 a.m. Friday morning prayer time for the students of our cluster. It's what we call our group of home groups. It's like an extended family. And most college students, probably aware, they think that anything before noon is pushing it. But they come. They come at 7 a.m. on Fridays to pray. They wake up early because they want to seek God. They wake up early because they want to pray for their home groups. They wake up early because they want to pray for their peers to come to know Jesus. The Spirit remains in our midst. A few weekends ago, I was at our church's women's retreat, and we had a time um, during worship where people could pray or share a testimony publicly in front of the entire group of women. And one student got up and she confessed publicly a specific sin issue she was struggling with, and she just kind of prayed about it. And it was it was intense. Um, 
it took tremendous courage for this young woman to share what she shared. And I remember the next day just thanking her for, for sharing, just letting her know how powerful it was for her to be vulnerable and to open up about something so personal. And I told her, I was like, man, I believe God is going to use your testimony to bring breakthrough for other women who heard her story. And then less than a week later, I was meeting with one of our student leaders, and I found out that because of this young woman's testimony, an entire home group of women opened up vulnerably, confessing and repenting of the same issue, something that like they hadn't opened up before. So the spirit, he remains in our midst. Yeah, that, that belief... It's what empowered Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest and all the remnant of the people to do the work of rebuilding the temple. They believed that the spirit was truly in their midst and therefore that that great mountain, that great mountain could become a level plain. And so as we finish this morning, we just want to ask, what about us? What about harvest? What about you? Do we believe that the spirit remains in our midst? Real belief, it always has one symptom. The symptom of real belief is hope. So we examine our hearts. Do we have hope? I don't mean like I can affirm a doctrine hope. I mean the hope that energizes. Do we have energizing hope for God's kingdom to come powerfully in the next generation? Do we have energizing hope even as we honestly acknowledge and recognize the failures of the American church? Do we have energizing hope as we acknowledge and recognize our own failures? Do we have that energizing hope even as we recognize and acknowledge the opposition of the culture around us? Real belief that the spirit remains in our midst. It energizes us with hope in the face of these deep, persistent challenges. And the reason it does that is because it's based in that simple idea that it's the spirit that makes the impossible possible. So then we have to ask, and maybe you're asking yourself this question right now. We ask it, we ask it, what if I don't have hope? In the past few months, when I am overwhelmed with discouragement, when I am feeling hopeless, when I'm the last thing but energized because everything, it seems, oh man, the culture's allied against us. These students can't make progress. When I'm feeling that, I've sensed God inviting me to simply ask him very honestly an uncomfortable question. Just for me as a son to say, say to him, Father, are you really with us? My sense has been that he doesn't actually want me to just try to turn quickly and reestablish my own belief, try to quickly force myself into hope. 
He wants me to be honest. He wants me to ask, are you with us? Does your spirit remain in our midst? Because when I ask that question, honestly, it gives him space to speak. And oftentimes for me, it's, it's, it takes days or weeks before I feel like I, I hear. So this is not an instantaneous thing. It's just creating the space. I'm not going to try to convince myself because it's his voice that changes everything. It's his voice through Haggai and through Zechariah that took a stalled project, a failure of 15 years and restarted it in a moment that created unity where there was no unity, that created energy where there was no energy. It's his voice. And then I think of Rachel's example. When we pray together, we usually have a brief time of prayer in the morning. One of the most common things that Rachel will say is we just work through things is she will just, she will appropriate that line from the gospels and she will say to the Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. So we ask the question, are you in our midst? And then we make the declaration that acknowledges our own struggle. And so as we conclude this morning, we want to invite you to reflect to examine your own heart. Am I filled with energizing hope? And if not, if not, consider honestly asking God this morning, are you actually with us? Do you remain in our midst? And then we also want to invite you to join us and making that same declaration of saying to the Lord, I, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. So we just want to give you a moment to pray and reflect. I'm going to put down the mic and we just want to pray for y'all and bless you guys. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.